0: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio station. My name is Steve Roost and each week we bring you the best news, views, and interviews with the people that are changing the face of healthcare Um, and since our reboot um, or sort of our return after our some holidays we're focusing on some really big questions so we've got a great line of guests And we're trying to focus on big questions that matter to everybody listening as far as health, healthcare and health technology is concerned. um, As regular listeners know, I'm a CEO and founder myself of a company called PocTalk, which has delivered a step change in diagnostics um, by allowing people to give themselves a blood test using their phone. Um, As always, just want to say thank you to everyone for joining, whether you're listening live on UK Health Radio, whether you are listening after the fact on Spotify as podcast or watching us on YouTube. Thank you very much. Um, all those channels, all everything's going up, 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 which is fantastic. Um, so search for health tech hour, just look for my smiley face. It, you, there are other health tech um, podcasts available, but you know it's up to you, your, your choice. Um, we've also started to do clips from the show, which are going down really well. So picking out key bits of the show uh, and putting them out that way. So keep an eye for those. Um, also, thanks a lot for, to PopTop for partnering the show, PopTop, my company. Um, and so, okay, so on to today's show. Today's show, one of the questions we're asking, but it's a big one, is what would happen if there were no more new drugs and no more new treatments? What would we do? So, um, with the health system as it is, you know, some people use the word crisis regularly, maybe it's a bit overused. Um, trying to figure out what we can do with what we've got already, or what more we can get from what we've got already with existing drugs, existing treatments, how much can we squeeze from what we've already got? is a hugely relevant question. And it's become the mission of my guest today, Hakim Yadi, OBE, CEO of Closed Loop Medicine. So Hakim has had an incredible career and he's still very much a spring chicken. Um, He's been an advisor, a long-term advisor to the UK and the UK government and the devolved administration in Northern Ireland, um, advisor to countless successful life science and health tech companies across the UK and also CEO of Closed Loop Medicine, um, which is aiming to combine drugs and therapies, existing drugs and existing therapies to be able to do more with what we already have, um, addressing the NHS backlog and um, major health inequalities. So Hakeem, welcome to the show. How's it going?
1: Hi Steve, really good. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Good, so I've got to ask, seeing as you're an OBE, I've got to ask, did that involve meeting Her Majesty or was it a different member of the Royal Family?
1: Um, so uh, I was very privileged to uh, have my be awarded to me by the then Prince Charles, now King Charles III. Um, wow. So quite a privilege to have met uh, our our now King. Amazing,
0: amazing. Um, so look, let's just straight jump. Let's let's jump in straight, straight jump straight in, shall we? Um, and and just like let's start with this question: What 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 would happen if there were no more drugs and no more therapies? Let's just start with that, and then we can get to. All the other stuff. But let's why don't we start with that? What, what do you think? What are your thoughts?
1: So I, I think this is one of those really interesting questions that um, I've been pondering for, for many years. And it's not because I'm you know, anti innovation or, or don't expect the next big therapy to, to come through. You know, I'm a trained scientist and always been inquisitive and always wanted to know what the next way of supporting, curing, managing uh, a disease might be given the state we find ourselves in, in terms of, of health, the level of health inequality, the challenges that COVID um, so so clearly uh, evidenced for us, this question of we have a huge amount of therapeutic intervention, whether it be drug, whether it be digital, whether it be diagnostic, whether it be you know, the advancements that have been made in machine learning and AI. What if we got to a position where there was no wonder drug around the corner? What if there wasn't going to be the next generation of, of therapy uh, or technology? How would we be improving care? And the reason I, I asked that and pondered that question is because I think for so many, whether they be patients, physicians, the payers, providers that support the health system like the NHS, I'm not too sure we can wait. I'm not too sure we can wait and say that it's gonna be solved with the next generation therapy or the next innovation. So what have we got? Well, we've seen over the past few years, um, amazing new therapies come through, whether they be drug or otherwise, plus we've got the whole pharmacopoeia at our disposal. We've seen an emergence of digital health 1.0 and now digital therapeutics being proven to be able to be regulated as uh, standalone therapies. You know, Companies like your own have proven that we can decentralise some of the many tests and diagnostics that um, would have required patients to go into hospital um, faster, more efficient. And we're now seeing with you know, the uh, plethora of new entrants from data and AI into healthcare that things can be diagnosed remotely uh, and as efficiently clinically. So what if we take that and start to leverage it? For some of the problems we've got what if we asked ourselves some of the, the nutty uh, and knotty questions um uh, around chronic disease management and said right let's just pretend there's nothing new happening mm. how could we restructure ourselves what have we got at our disposal and, and it, and it, it rem- do you, sorry do you feel like at the moment the whole
0: system is geared around looking forward to the next thing is that sort of what you mean by a restructure because there's sort of this almost an addiction to the to, to, to the sort of, Oh, something you so we'll do what we can do now because there's always something new going to come, which will kind of improve everything anyway. So like, it doesn't really, it, it's, it's not structured in the way around like making the best of what we've got. Is that what you mean?
1: I think we all love innovation and we all love the next new shiny thing. That's going to come along regardless of sector uh, in health and outside of health. Um, I just wonder, do we have this um, potential longing that there will be the solution? Uh, And so there's an element of not 100% committing to using what we have now. Right. And the the reason I say, this is just a thought experiment. Well, no, uh,
0: I think it's really interesting because, you know, again, like data point of one, but like a lot of the grant funding, just take grant funding for an example, Like you, you, um, and I don't know, some people listening might know or not know, but there's a few kind of major R&D grant funding bodies in the UK where the government uses them to pump out uh, funding. So Innovate UK, SBRI, there's a few others. And and, and a lot of the time, they want new, they won't accept a grant that's around existing technology. They won't accept a submission that's around something existing. It's to fund new things. So you might have a product, and we fell into this category for, for a while, You might have something that you think is perfect to answer the brief but you can't go further because it already exists and actually they very specifically say they're funding things that don't exist yet right
1: absolutely um i think that remains a challenge for all types of funding whether it be grant or otherwise and i can understand the balance of why an emphasis is put on on those products um, that are innovative because they do need that support they're much they've got a much higher risk um, but I think where we, we fail to support is the rollout of these types of technologies. There's a a wonderful quote, which is, um, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. Right. And I think you know this is about that even distribution of the future that we already have in, in our hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what we're seeking to do, at least uh, uh, with my own company, with, with closed loop medicine, is to look at the things that we already know work and think about how we could optimise them. And not just in the context of the NHS, but this is a global challenge. Um, we're seeing you know, huge shortages of um, the healthcare professionals in the clinical workforce. Global, I mean, that's, yeah, we, globally, said we, had,
0: absolutely yeah we, had, we had Ahmed Sharabani from Locum's Nest online a couple of weeks ago, and it's the same, it's, it's It's no longer just, okay. well, we'll import more doctors or nurses or, you know, it's like everyone's trying to import more doctors and nurses. So, you know, there's no it's not like there's some kind of magic country where they make them, you know, like everyone's got a problem.
1: No. And don't get me started on the issue that that creates down the line when um, the the wealthy, more affluent countries have imported from other countries who then need doctors. Well, yeah, that's exactly Um,
0: what's happening. Right. There's a drain out of the countries where and that exacerbates the global health inequality while people in wealthy countries feel a bit better about their health, I guess. Uh,
1: Exactly, Uh, and so there is an opportunity to look at what we've got, um, look at the drugs that we know that work, but could be optimised by bringing them alongside the types of technology that um, your own company supports, diagnostics, uh, digital health, behavioural therapy, One of the things that I noticed when uh, I was working for an organization called the Northern Health Science Alliance, a network of bringing hospitals and universities together across the north of England, is that there were so many companies coming into the health system with a drug, a device, a -hmm. diagnostic, a digital solution. And actually, if we want to truly move to a a health system that delivers outcomes rather than interventions... I would place my bet that it won't be any one of those things that delivers that outcome. It'll be a combination of factors. It will be the monitoring that's helped the patient understand their condition and potentially make improvements, the behavioural nudges that were delivered through um, a behavioural therapy or CBT, the drug which is starting to address the underlying uh, mechanism of of disease, um, and then a whole host of other players. And And so we need to be able... Yeah. sorry go oh, on you... go on no, no no go
0: on carry on Finish Wait, we, we
1: need to understand the patient the disease and the therapy and put all three in context
0: and is it at the moment that because obviously you know it's great that there are so many companies coming with new products and innovations and that's great right assuming that they all work and they all you know are net net positive but like that's a great thing is it that the challenge is more around how to kind of be the composer that brings out everything together, you know, uh, because those can, companies are going to continue to pitch and go into tenders and they're going to do whatever they're going to do. Right. Cause that's just what companies do. But at some point there needs to be something or someone or so, something bringing this all together because otherwise it's going to continue on being, you know, everything being a bit sort of siloed and not, we're not getting the best of everything. I think that's sort of what you're sort of saying.
1: Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. You use the word composer. Um, Very early on uh, in the the days of uh, forming and establishing closed loop medicine, uh, I gave a presentation where my opening slide was a picture of an orchestra.
0: (laughs) Look at that. Nothing if not insightful.
1: Exactly. Um, Because uh, in effect, at the moment, we've got the the strings, the wind instruments um, and the percussion all doing their own thing. Right. No one bringing it together, no central score um, t- to unite them. Now, don't get me wrong, of course, there are, there are some fantastic examples where this is brought together, um, and we can see that evidence through some of the innovations, uh, services, uh, and great work going on inside the NHS and, and elsewhere, but a systematic bringing together of these technologies, these data flows to have a more holistic view of the patient uh, becomes so important. And the area in which we're focused on uh, is thinking about making sure that patients get the right dose of medication. Okay. So many drugs were have been made are being made um, in an environment which forced quite rightly through the regulatory conditions and the, the way in which we understood medicines to work at the time through a, a very controlled environment of controlled patients going into a controlled trial. And what we see when these products are brought out um, into the real world is they're being used by patients of all shapes, sorts, and sizes, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different personalities, different behavior types, different associations with medicine. And we need to be able to understand how the right way to use that therapy might be. And we're in a situation where we now have the power of software as a medical device that can sit on a smartphone to capture high fidelity information whether that be from a patient reported outcome whether it be from a quantified biometric um, data point from a wearable or a medical device and start to triangulate what might be the right dose for you as opposed to me
0: so let's just take and a that step.
1: starts to go a very long way towards optimizing what we've already got so like let's just go back a couple
0: of steps because i know that when we first spoke about this and you know we started riffing on all this stuff i, I immediately sort of found it really interesting which is like do you you feel like there has been an assumption made potentially for the right reasons around drug creation around dosages like you said obviously in order to get a drug through very intense trials to prove it's safe in humans that needs to be done very very rigorously with a huge amount of oversight and control and, and and auditability and traceability and all that stuff which has to has to happen but is it like then there's just an assumption or has been an assumption that the real world operates the same way as the clinical trial world. And everyone thought, oh, well, you know, why don't we just assume that? And it sort of evidently isn't the same, right?
1: So I don't think it's that simple. Okay. Um, Quite rightly, um, the products that have gone through the appropriate clinical trials, regulatory approvals, um, and have gone through the the evidence-based process that is absolutely required of medicine. Um, yeah, of course.
0: You, I mean, you, let's you, not you, mess you, around. You,
1: exactly. Um, uh, and to do that at you know, every dose form would have made clinical trials hugely expensive and hugely costly. And so okay. there was a, a rationing that had to happen. And so, an, of course, an understanding mm-hmm. by um, innovators at the time that you, you would have to you know, coalesce around certain opportunities to, to get the dose right. I think separately, many of the drugs that are used widely now um, for a whole host of different therapeutic interventions were brought to market in a very different time, um, where we didn't have the challenges of longevity, multi-morbidity, polypharmacy um, in the same way that we do now. Right. So they didn't go through, there wasn't the same level of interference shall we say or or, or um interaction.
0: there wasn't the level of
1: complexity there wasn't the level complexity. of complexity that we have now um, right. but i think the, the point is that we are now in a position um and it's not a position of tomorrow it's a position of today where we can start to capture that complexity we can analyze that complexity and start to optimize for outcomes for individuals
0: because like it kind of blew me away when you sort of explained this to me because one part of me is like, well, if the dose is the dose, and you take the dose, if I so if I was prescribed something, and I took that dose, it, in my wholehearted belief, I, I would I would there wouldn't be an element of me that would ever question that dose, if that makes any sense. It uh, because it, I don't know whether it's like a cultural thing or kind of, I don't know some sort of sort of hypnotism but if it's on the label and my doctors told me to do it then i I sort of i'm I'm all in on it if that makes any sense but i don't is it is it the same thing as we're not we're not even talking about compliance at this point right this is just this is not even talking about people that aren't taking what they should be taking we're literally talking about the, the actual the actual dosages may be wrong because of the wide range of different reasons and you know the individual idiosyncrasies of each person right so we're literally talking about like a back to basics of the dosage of how many pills and how strong they should be for particular things.
1: Exactly so we've been working with patient groups and with patients and clinicians and we hear stories of patients cutting, crushing, nibbling tablets so they get the right dose. Now in my mind no wow. one should be nibbling medicines in the 21st century.
0: No and is that because they how do they know that it's the wrong dose or are they just kind of like self-medicating a little bit they're uh, trying to kind of uh, adjust it themselves on the fly?
1: so a lot of them are uh, experimenting um to be able right. to work out what's right for them but then there's also been the power of these you know patient empowered social networks um right. patients like me in other words where patients can share information and say actually if you know you take two of those that day and one of those that day i find it works better for me and so wow. there's a huge amount of patient insight which
0: and never, existed before. And never, which existed, never before. existed before and that never existed
1: before it never existed before
0: yeah Right, so everyone was operating in their own little silo, right? And you had one single point of contact with the medical establishment, which was your physician. And maybe you had a a chat with some of the people in your your friendship group, but your friendship group was 10 people, 20 people. So, you know, very limited, and they may not even have the same thing that you have. Whereas if you can access these massive social networks, there's always going to be a large number of people there that have a similar problem with you. So your access to information is is, is significantly greater. Um, But also, as you said, the ability to actually analyze this problem or these problems. How big a problem is this, do you, do you think, in, in general, um, wrong dosages? Because I know that you uh, at Closed Loop are focused on a few key areas and things like that, which we can come on to after we do the, the commercial break. But like, how, how big a problem is this issue, do, do you think?
1: Well, you know, if you think about the pharmacopoeia, um, and you think about the drugs that are actively dose-optimized, um, one or two spring to mind: insulin, warfarin, um, and then you, then you. The list starts to dwindle. Now, uh, the medics listening at the line right now will start shouting out drugs. I'm sure, um, <laughs> but, it, but, it, but but that, that are uh, being optimised. Um, but it is it's not as widespread as it could and potentially should be to be able to improve outcomes at at that individual level.
0: Right, so what you mean, okay, so just a, and then we'll go for a commercial break. But you mentioned insulin. That's dose-optimized because people measure their blood glucose during the day and therefore adjust the level of insulin that they take. And I'm not sure how they do it with warfarin, which is a blood thinner, right? So I don't know how that, um, is that like a... That requires they,
1: a specific blood test to
0: be able to work yeah, out that, what's, okay. what's appropriate okay. for you. But, but, but conceptually, outside of those two, where you can adjust the dosage of the drug based on a test that you, you are doing or being done to you, semi-regularly or however it happens the point is is that there isn't any there isn't a way to adjust like that for any well for, for many other drugs any not other, not for okay. many no. right that's really interesting so to the extent where i think the insulin example is really interesting right because everyone sort of well a lot of people listening will understand conceptually what diabetes is conceptually so like, why wouldn't other conditions be treated that way? I think sort of your point, right?
1: Around dosage. Yeah, that's the point, right? With, uh, yeah. with this level of insight, with this level of um, data and the ability to analyze, why don't we treat every condition on an individual level?
0: Right. And that speaks to this idea of doing more with what we've got, right? Which is what exactly. we've got a drug for the condition we've got through the point where we, where we verify that it actually treats the condition. We know all of that, right? but we can optimize it by just using other technologies to help us optimize. All right, Hakim, I feel like we're making great progress. So we'll stop for, um, we're going to take two minutes now for a commercial break, and then we'll be right back. And after that, I want to dig really into, because I I think the areas that Closed Leap Medicine are focusing on are really interesting, and I think I want to dig more into that in the next section of the show. So we'll be right back um, with Hakim Yaddy, CEO of Closed Leap Medicine, and me, Steve Roost.
2: Radio. The station that makes you feel good.
3: Nagging pain. We at Alga Cells know that a small amount of the patient's own bone marrow and blood cells can treat many painful conditions with regenerative orthopaedic therapy. This is an attractive treatment option for painful joints, back pain, sports injuries and many other conditions. It may avoid the need for surgery altogether. AlgaCells, part of a network of 50 RegenX clinics worldwide where over 60,000 patients have been treated and helped. AlgaCells, life is more beautiful with less pain.
2: A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside you will find a vegan restaurant, Juice bar and holistic dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body, and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions. To find out more, please visit us at hellolove.org. Radio. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Good, good.
0: Hello, and welcome back to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, and um, Hakim Yadi, the CEO of Closed Loop Medicine. Um, in the first part of the show, we were really digging into this idea that of, of, of um, that we have drugs, we have treatments, but no, it's, we're leaving a lot of opportunity to improve health on the table, so to speak, without wishing to coin a kind of business phrase for the health space. Um, but there's a lot of kind of, if we bring everything together, um, that there is already drugs to treat existing conditions, but they can be optimized because no one's really looked at dose optimization. So making sure you're actually taking the right dosage of the pills. And so let's switch up now to of, of all because you have an amazing CV and you've done lots of different things at really senior levels. So, what was it that, that made you want to do closed loop medicine and also the the focus on these particular areas that you have chosen? So just walk us through, you know how you got to this mission and what it is and and, and how you think about it.
1: So I'm uh, someone who very fortunately always sort of knew roughly what they wanted to do. I was always fascinated by the natural world. Um, David Attenborough was an inspiration to me as a young child um, and followed my my passions in then studying biology. But then during my research years, um, wanted to find that connection between research and you know, actual application uh, and the obvious avenue is, is human health and um, through that I was very fortunate to be uh, selected to be the CEO of uh, the Northern Health Science Alliance, an organisation I mentioned earlier, um, which brought together the leading NHS trusts and universities across the north of England with a view to improve health outcomes for the north. Um, because sadly, uh, the UK is one of the most unequal um, uh, or unequal um, health geographies, uh, and so this was around. What do we doing uh, just more-
0: to, Just to jump in there, um, let's. Health inequality is a term that gets thrown around a lot. So, how do you define it? Or I mean, there might be a canonical definition, but how? How do you, when you said it's one of the most unequal societies in terms of health care? What, what do you? What What does that mean to you? Or what? What should we be thinking of when when that's said?
1: So the the context in which I'm talking about it is um, a piece of work that um, colleagues and and collaborators uh, delivered uh, in the north of England a number of years ago. Uh, and I may get my stats a bit wrong here, so I can't remember top off my head. Um, Was that um, if you were born in the north of England compared to the south, you had a 20 percent higher chance of dying under the age of 75 than if you'd been born in the south of England. Okay. And that transpires to, over the last 50 years, one million people dying younger than they would have normally done if they'd been given the same life opportunity and health opportunity uh, as the South East. Now, for those astute listening um, will know that that type of inequality exists almost in every aspect of every um, nook and cranny of the UK and here in London. You, know, you can say the same between, I don't know, Tower Hamlets and South Kent. Yeah. But... It's the scale that it happens um, through the North-South divide um, that was something that the Northern Health Science Alliance was trying to uh, address by um, highlighting the issue and bringing new innovation and funding into the health system of the North. And it was through delivering the the vision and mission of the Northern Health Science Alliance that I saw firsthand the lack of joined up thinking between the different therapeutic modalities. And got to a point of actually introducing two or three companies just you know being the conductor back to your earlier point Steve Mm. um introducing um the strings to the brass to the percussion and saying you guys really need to come together Um, but what was interesting at the time is that each of those three companies quite clearly were driven by different incentives different missions different visions and so found it quite difficult to collaborate right and so
0: and also, let's be and to be honest with you, let you know, collaborating private companies collaborating together in an equal nature around a project with a sort of a single counterparty, say for example a clinical commissioning group, that's hard for those companies to get with. That's that's thing. really that's really complicated, especially if they're I think like large big companies that do these gigantic infrastructure projects. They must have to deal with it all the time. They probably have like a project management department of like a thousand people or something, but. You know, for like slightly smaller companies, that's extremely hard to, to, to do.
1: Exactly. And so as a as a very naive young entrepreneur, um, my my thought was well, if three companies can't do it, why well, can maybe one should do it? Right. And um, with a view of is it possible for one company um to bring these different modalities together? Make it as simple as possible for a physician to prescribe and a patient to receive an integrated care solution, bringing drug and digital together. And that's what myself and my other co-founders Set off to achieve by setting up closed medicine
0: cool and let's just go back a second to this health equity health inequality piece do, do you feel like politicians have done enough to address that that the NHS has done enough to address it that like I mean I know the northern Health Science Alliance took it upon themselves to just crack on with trying to figure it out you know what, what it's a huge issue right so what you know what what's your thoughts about about that
1: I think it's a Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a huge issue. And it's not one that is easily solved within a political life cycle.
0: Right.
1: Um, It's a long and enduring issue that I would argue needs um, multiple players, um, different parties to come together to solve. One of the things that really saddened me um, in my role at the NHSA when i was there is that we published this report with regard to the um the news and and data analysis of that level of health inequality and it quite rightly made the news and the lead investigators were interviewed on sky and all of the the importance that was was placed on it yeah and then it disappeared Mm. where's the follow-up and so one of the things we did um is to look at how it impacts another important aspect of the country, which is the economy, because health and wealth are inextricably linked. Of course. And so we asked the question with some leading academics um, from the academic institutions that we were partnered with in the North of England. It was a bit of an odd question, but um, one we thought was worth asking, which was if you raised the health levels of the north to match those of the south not higher just match what would that do for uk productivity right now you you've used the phrase um on this, this discussion a couple of times of leaving something on the table yeah well it turned out from this analysis and yes it's purely paper based but you know a huge amount of merit behind the the outcome is that by having this level of health inequality we're leaving 13 over 13 billion on the table each year. So if you brought the North of England's health equality up to the level of the South, you'd bring back 13 billion into the UK economy each year. That's insane. That's crazy. And that, you know, and again... And that's that's just for the North. That's not for all the other regions as well. So it it is insane. And and one of the things that, to where we started this conversation of how can we do more with what we're doing today? We've noticed that by working with some of the the leading lights in disease management and and clinical care that those that are fortunate enough to get access to these individuals will go through a fine-tuning of their therapy, getting the dose right, um, making sure the balance between behavioural therapy and drug therapy is right, making sure that the individual is getting towards the outcome they want to get to. And, you know, every clinician in the world would ideally love to do that for every single one of their patients. But as you quite rightly highlighted, we have a massive shortage of healthcare professionals. And so the the limited time you have available with a patient means that you can't really do that even with the best will in the world.
0: No, I mean, not in a seven
1: minute. What is it, seven minutes now, the average GP appointment? What is it? Is it seven? I I think so. I read that somewhere. uh, So, so, you know, part of what we want to think about with um, the way we're approaching this solution is what if you were able to democratize through technology access to that fine-tuning to optimize outcomes take the type of tweaking and fiddling that um, clinicians do to make sure it's just right for you and be able to understand how that works what data points are they triangulating from how have they made their decision and take the advances in um, uh, in data, data analysis, AI, ML, and be able to apply that to a bigger population. Right. And so we hope that through what we're doing at Closed Loop Medicine, we get to a point where we start to level the playing field. Yeah. So let's
0: talk about this. So you're focusing on insomnia, hypertension, and chronic pain. Is that correct? And so correct. L- which one do you want to talk about first as to why it's important? And what particularly was being done suboptimally, potentially, that sort of led you to look at that, and then what the kind of impact is. I mean, they're sort of every each one of them is a massive, massive issue. So, um, but yeah, like where, where do you want to start?
1: Well, I think as it's hypertension awareness month this month, um, it's probably important to start uh, there. Um, okay. And um, hypertension, for those who aren't aware, it's often referred to as the silent killer and um, impacts a third of the adult population um, where patients have an elevated blood pressure and can lead to long term cardiovascular problems uh, and ultimately risk of death through, uh, through stroke.
0: And what's the um, what's the generally accepted level at the moment for elevated blood pressure? Is it what is it? Is it anything above one? Is it one 130 over 80 or what is it yeah, it's something like that? that yeah Uh, and which actually isn't actually that is not that high like that's actually i think most a lot of people listening was if you actually actually sat down and took your blood pressure you 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 might be surprised at how high it actually is like uh,
1: yeah i I think um and but that's a really interesting point you just made is how and when you take it because a lot of patients will be taking it in the context of a um a clinical setting where they might be Nervous and have a high blood pressure in that moment. So, yeah. actually, what's important is the real world context for that blood pressure recording yeah. um, outside of the, the clinical um, environment. And so, we've been looking at hypertension um, and incredibly proud of what the team at Closed Medicine have done, particularly um, during the, the, the COVID crisis, of being able to um, stand up for clinical trial. With partners at the William Harvey Cardiovascular Research Centre at Barts and QMUL, where we were able to run a study um, on a particular antihypertensive, a calcium calcium channel blocker, um, and okay. to be able to use the data we collected from um, our software to be able to triangulate what was the right dose for an individual. And, how does um, how
0: does the software do that? How does it work? There might be some proprietary secret squirrel stuff you can't go into, but conceptually.
1: So conceptually, this is all around triangulation. Um, so a calcium channel blocker causes vasodilation uh, to lower the blood pressure.
0: Yeah, that's, for everyone who, that's expansion of the blood vessels, right? So it lowers, expansion the, of the, blood it, it lowers the, the blood vessels. lowers the pressure because the blood vessels are larger.
1: Exactly. And um, some very basic physics. If you... Widen the blood vessels um and you are um like every human on this planet affected by gravity it causes the blood to rush to your feet yeah and so for certain individuals if they take too much of this drug they have swollen ankles peripheral edema Uh
2: they get headache
1: because the blood has run to their feet Uh Um, and they can get what's known as flushing Um, So the the, where the blood vessels of your skin sort of open up, and you 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 have a red, uh, effectively staining. Right now, what we were able to do, and delighted that only last week we were able to present this data at the British and Irish Hypertension Society. Oh, that's Um, cool! Yeah, really amazing to be able to get to a point of being able to present it um, to that audience. Um, We show that if you could track the individual's regimen in which they were taking their medicine the blood pressure for that individual and then allow an individual to track their own individual response in terms of the side effects they perceive okay you can start to triangulate what the right dose might be for you because your blood pressure is lower to point of control okay but actually your side effects are tolerable
0: right and if and you so have, is it like if you have enough data points of each one of those three streams you can sort of see where they kind of
1: converge. This is, this is the composer having access to all of the music. Right. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. This is being able to understand and, and, uh, at an individual level how to bring these things together. And so we were able to do this uh, in a study um, run during COVID where we were also looking at the, the impact of, of COVID on patients with hypertension. Um, in over 200 patients with some phenomenal support from the clinical team at Barts QMUL. And back to one of your earlier points, um, Steve, this was an Innovate UK funded uh, project as well. There you go. um, So well well done Innovate UK. um, So um, a really interesting um, collaboration that has been able to show us that there are mechanisms for optimizing therapies that are used quite widely by many patients to find um uh, and this may not necessarily translate globally but that goldilocks point not too hot not too cold just yeah. the right dose for an individual and what is like
0: big picture why does it matter that you this is going to be a stupid question so apologies why does it matter that somebody or that, that large populations of people take hypertension are on the correct dose or, or sorry the correct dose and the correct treatment for hypertension why, why does that actually matter? What's the downside of just cracking on the way that we have been?
1: So um, I think we can take this outside the context of, of hypertension. If you had a, a disease which didn't really manifest itself in daily symptoms, so you're quite unaware of it, hence it's termed a silent killer. But the therapy that you were taking to manage this disease meant that you couldn't put your shoes on. Right. Did you I got... keep taking the medicine because you've no. got swollen ankles? Yeah, And so it matters because this is about making patients' relationship to their medicine more manageable, more tolerable, and more consistent so that they stay on that therapy and lower their blood pressure. Because, as I said, it manifests itself in a multitude of uh, more um, aggressive and life-threatening implications for that individual uh, if the disease is left uncontrolled.
0: That's really interesting. So basically, I think what, you, what the the hypertension is a disease that's a, a long term disease. You know, is it, is it chronic disease? Yeah, yeah. Think, it's a chronic, it, it's a chronic, a chronic, disease. Chronic, 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 disease, chronic disease. So you're you're taking drugs daily to alleviate or to prevent something from happening. So you don't necessarily day to day perceive the benefit of that treatment, but what you do see every day are the side effects of the medication. So you get the negative, but you don't see the positive, and therefore your experience is overall more negative, and therefore you might not take it, you might drop out of it, which then massively increases your risk of having a cardiac event or some negative impact down the line. That's, that, that makes a lot of sense. Exactly.
1: That makes Now, the, no, the, the good thing about hypertension is that there are uh, uh, lots of other different types of intervention that a clinician can use if you know, this particular drug wasn't working. What we wanted to show um, with this particular study is that there is a way of taking what we already have, software, drug, patient experience, triangulating that and be able to find the right solution for you as an individual. That is something that becomes highly translatable um, across different disease settings. Cool. All right, well, look, we're going to stop for our last
0: commercial break and then we'll come back and then I think we should probably have a little deep deep dive into insomnia i'm particularly interested about because i don't know a huge amount about that one and i know that it afflicts so many different people um and and then obviously we've got chronic pain as another one but but let's let's take two minutes now and we'll come back with the last part of this week's show with hakim yadi ceo of closely medicine
2: uk health radio the station that makes you feel good good
3: Nagging pain. We at Alga Cells know that a small amount of the patient's own bone marrow and blood cells can treat many painful conditions with regenerative orthopaedic therapy. This is an attractive treatment option for painful joints, back pain, sports injuries and many other conditions. It may avoid the need for surgery altogether. Alga Cells. Part of a network of 50 RegenX clinics worldwide where over 60,000 patients have been treated and helped. Alga Cells. Life is more beautiful with less pain.
2: A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside, you will find a vegan restaurant, juice bar, and holistic dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body, and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions. To find out more, please visit us at hellolove.org. Station that makes you feel good.
0: Okay, hello and welcome back to the final part of this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost. And my guest, Hakim Yadi, from, um, from Closed Loop Medicine. So um, before the break, we were talking about the work that you guys have done in hypertension. Let's talk about insomnia. I'm sure lots of people listening suffer from insomnia. Some do, like, from time to time, like I do from time to time, but some people, I'm, I'm sure it's a chronic condition. So what, what's going on with, with that, particularly the drug-digital health combination, I think is really, really interesting
1: there. So you're right, Steve. Um, insomnia is something that impacts a lot. 10 to 15% of the the adult population. Is it that many? That's um, that's huge. That's huge. uh, And and higher still um, sadly for some patient groups um, where their comorbidity of another disease sort of accentuates uh, the insomnia. Insomnia is one of those very interesting conditions where you need to effectively address two components. Uh, Both a um, biological and a behavioural, because this is all around uh, in effect in those patients with with insomnia, a misalignment of the circadian rhythm, uh, and so your body clock is out of sync. Yeah, and then separately, um, you a in effect set of behaviours that aren't necessarily supporting you going to bed uh, at the right time. Uh, and so things around their individual association with the bedroom, um, you know, it being dark, uh, you know, half-life and importance of understanding when and when not to drink coffee. Yeah, uh, And so there's lots of behavioral and physiological things that need to come together for individuals to have uh, a good night's sleep. And so... As an individual, and I think this is really important, you know, we were talking about um, sort of the level of personalization and precision one might need um, to address these types of indications. The, the amount of a drug that you take um, is important, but also when you take it might be right. important. And you and I may both be suffering from insomnia, but we have a very different rhythm, a very different circadian rhythm. Uh, And therefore, we want to be able to make sure that as we modulate and uh, start to optimize that, we take the medication at the right time to enable us to reset the clock and get back to uh, a good night's sleep. And so what we have been doing at Closed Loop Medicine is looking at how to uh, augment and support drug-based therapy for patients who are um, prescribed with um, uh, a sleeping aid drug so that we can look at both the optimization of when, but also to support the patient with the types of um, uh, behavioral interventions often referred to as sleep hygiene uh, yeah. alongside their medication.
0: And has no one ever done that before? There's not, because there, that strikes me as something that would be relatively like there, there. those are the two key pieces of the puzzle. But is it like people get prescribed a sleep aid? but then no one thinks about the behavior. But I imagine there's lots of kind of apps and digital solutions that don't touch
1: on the prescription bit. So what we've seen over the past, so hang on, let me start it again. Yes, it is done. Right. But it's done in an analog way. And from a health equity and access perspective, um, traditionally that behavioral advice and support was done through face-to-face therapy um, or uh, in group sessions, often mm-hmm. very hard for an individual to access um, because the specialist centre might be many miles away from where they live. Um, those sessions may not be at a time um, that is helpful Suitable. to a patient. Yeah, And of- often, sometimes it takes so long to get the appointment, that it's months away from when the first prescription was made. Right. right now, right. You know, one of the great advances that we've seen of digital therapy Um, And the UK has actually led the way in this in terms of its uh, endorsement of um, a digital therapy for sleep is is Sleepio, um, which is a technology which delivers the digital um, side uh, of therapy. Um, But for many patients in many disease settings, you need to address both that physiological and behavioral. So it's been done by specialists who have tried to bring these two things together, bring these two levers together. It's been done in an individualized way but it hasn't been systematized no one's had the true data streams on both your earlier point and so we've started uh, on a journey of developing a product that brings both the drug and the non-drug elements together on a single prescription not Sorry, something uh, that's been done before so at the moment with sleepio how does, do what, well,
0: I haven't actually looked at that. I, I saw it in the news, but how does their, their digital therapy piece work? What what actually is it? Because I've always kind of like instinctively, they say, well, you shouldn't look at your phone close to bedtime and they're delivering it through a phone. So I'm guessing that they're not doing it close to bedtime or it's, you know, audio only or something,
1: but I don't know. So there are a number of different interventions for um, sleep and it's sort of, if you go on the app store um you'll find hundreds of different solutions. There are some nice, yeah. uh, like Sleepio, that have gone down the, the strong clinical evidence route to prove that their technology works. Um, and the main constitution of what they do, you could, if you wanted to, um, teach yourself in a book. It's called Cognitive Behavioural Therapy for Insomnia, CBTI. Yeah, And it's what a therapist would deliver through a face-to-face session or in group sessions. And it is around that education of um, the behaviours before bed, and yeah. the things that impact your sleep. Uh, and then also is helping an individual start to set a, a routine um, for them uh, in terms of when to go to bed and when to wake up and trying to lock that down. So there's a whole series of modules that... Um, uh, as one of our advisors said, that you could, you could teach yourself it from a book if you really wanted to, but no one does. No, uh, and, it's and so, hard to, do, exactly. to teach yourself something from a book. Uh, uh, and, and so, you know, what um, companies like Big Health have done is they've gone and digitised that and made it far more accessible. And now we've had a nice assessment of that um, uh, and showed the, the way forward for bringing digital technologies to the UK and NHS. And, and now we're starting to see that happen in other markets as well. Um, In Germany, particularly very, very forefront of of digital prescribing. Sorry, not digital prescribing, prescribing of digital interventions. What we've done is to say, that's brilliant. That is the way forward to deliver that aspect of care. But but our belief is that to be able to support patients um, with insomnia, we're going to need to bring these two different modalities together, um, both drug and non-drug. Yeah, it's like common sense,
0: right? And also, like, presumably, I don't know quite what the the sleep aid drugs like, but if you're you you might be more attuned to improvements from the digital therapeutic or some people might be more attuned to the pharma, you know, pharmaceutical piece. And so that might like shift around. Right. And you want the ability to adjust that on the fly because you don't want to be over medicating if you don't have to be, you know, but you also don't want to come off of it and then get the insomnia
1: again. So it kind of needs to go hand in hand. Exactly. And that's the case for so many, um, so many diseases, so many patients around how they're going to respond. Some will respond better to one half or the other. And if if you don't have that information flow between the two, how do you know which one to push on and which one to pull back on?
0: Yeah. How do you know which one's working? How do you know what they're responding better to if they're not connected?
1: And so this is sort of the whole essence of, of, of closed loop medicine is to bring this together. Um, to be able to start to think about um, bringing these different modalities together to support um, long-term condition management, to be able to create those data streams where you can understand more than one aspect of an individual, and to be able to provide that information back to a clinician to make better informed decisions about the individual's care.
0: Right. I think that makes
1: total sense. Um... And okay, as you said, uh, yeah has someone already done it? This goes back to where we started this conversation um this afternoon, which is do more with what we've already got,
0: yeah, it's like with there are lots of people doing great things on the digital therapeutic side, there are lots of people there there are already lots of good pharmaceutical interventions, drugs, you know treat that from that type of thing, but bringing them together makes total sense um yeah, it's just sort of uh, yeah, like we said, like stuff being left on the table a little bit, right. So what's your kind of best case? What's your absolute smash it out of the park you know, percentage improvement that you think that you can make here from optimization or like system-wide? You know, what's the kind of, yeah, I don't know. Do you see what I'm sort of, what's the, what are we talking about here? So, you know, um, best case,
1: best ever case. Best ever case. This is going to sound odd um, because I'm not going to answer you with numbers. I'm going to answer that's fine. you um, with a future scenario. Okay, great. Um, that's, that's better. I have um, uh, the the privilege and uh, and honor of being father to two little girls, um, one two and one five. I view a world where one day they will come to me and say, Papa, when you were younger, they didn't know which drug were you going to respond to and what the right dose was. That's mad. (laughs) right yeah because you look at now and you see the technological innovations that are happening and the ability for the generation is to quickly grasp and utilize them i can't see why that isn't a future that's real right well it sort of is happening for diabetes right i mean it's it's exactly it's it's, why shouldn't it happen elsewhere and why shouldn't that that future be uh, a reality that we can all be working towards
0: well, that's one of the reasons why we do, well, I was going to get your view on diagnostics. So, like, let's take—it's kind of a short step away from hypertension, but let's take cardiovascular disease or lipid-lowering therapies. You know, like statins, they—they they require a five-marker lipid panel to be run. And so, like, how do you view the, the concept of of diagnostics in in your sort of worldview?
1: So, for me, diagnostics—the more uh, accessibility, easier access to um, ability for uh, information flows from the individual in their care setting becomes absolutely vital to the idea that we're going to improve outcomes because that is the, the point at which most therapies are going to be triangulated against. Right. And so I, you know, healthcare uh, and the challenges facing it are Too knotty a problem for any one company to solve. We, as uh, innovators on our particular mission, are going to be reliant on technologies like yours and like other diagnostics out there to be able to get accurate, rapid analysis of the individual from which to inform and triangulate a care decision based on available information. Yeah, And so as we think about the other areas that we might be given the opportunity to go and work on in the future, we will need to know, what is the diagnostic? Can it be done remotely? Are patients using it? Is it accessible? Uh, And so your POCROS type of technology becomes um, very important to, I think, the the whole future of care. And I think what's really exciting is one of the silver linings of the COVID crisis um, is that so many people now know how and what to use a remote diagnostic there has been a yeah. edu- there's been a mass Massive. education that that no other um step change in in, in healthcare history will be able to um to achieve and it you know, sadly it was a, a horrible period, but there have been some things that come through that are positive positive. and yeah. now that we have a, an educated populace um on diagnostics. I think it creates a new opportunity for deploying them at scale. Yeah, no, I agree, and I think it's it's really interesting. I mean, just just the the
0: kind of just in our world around you know the difference in the views and opinions about what we're doing from you know now versus before the pandemic is just you know um, just just shifted so dramatically. You know, the idea that I mean we we never believed this to be the case, but people you know a few years ago, with a couple of years ago, were sort of saying, well. You know, no one's going to want to test themselves at home and things like that. They're not going to do that. i like, well, respectfully, 60 million people go to the doctor's surgery every year and have blood taken out of their arm for a 5 market lipid panel. So, you know, some percentage of those people would prefer to not do that, I, I would think. But now it's not even a discussion. I mean, now everyone's been shoving things up their nose and all sorts of things for for, for, for a couple of years. It's just a huge sea change. And like you say, I mean, it would be great that we could have done that without COVID. COVID was hugely traumatic um but you know as it's happened and we just have to take what we can what we can get from it um but look Hakeem we've come to the end of the show so I just want to say thanks a lot for coming on it was great to hear about this view and I feel like digging into these big questions was was really good and it was a really interesting discussion and, and not one that I've sort of had that many times before around you know what would we do um what would we do if and you know so just thanks a lot
1: for coming on the show no, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for the the opportunity to explore that question. As I said, not one I would want to see uh, become a reality. No. <laughs> see the next generation of technologies break through and, and support and, and uh, help patients. But it's an interesting thought experiment that I think we might all benefit yeah. from asking ourselves: How can we do more with what we have? I agree. And thanks to everyone for listening.
0: And um, we'll be back again um, with another show, a new show in a couple of weeks. This show gets repeated the next week, but um yeah we'll be back again with another great guest thanks for listening
2: i've
0: been holding on to pieces swimming in